with our friend R.W. Estella, who we hear from every Monday morning at this time here on Mondays. Good morning, R.W. Hey, good morning, Allison. This past weekend that for some hyper-shoppers got going not too many hours after Thanksgiving dinner made me again most grateful to have a snug, warm, blessedly modest place I call home to take refuge in when no small percentage of the local urban landscape nearby was abounding with discount-priced retail activity designed not only to separate the buyer from ready cash, but also, if possible, to plunge him or her further into that greatest of American quagmires, credit card debt. My Thanksgiving weekends were not always so sedately withdrawing in nature as they are now, protected little moments during which I make every effort to casually recharge the personal proverbial batteries while much of the world around me engenders a frenetic pace. No, once upon a time, Thanksgiving weekends, especially the ones that came right at the end of November, had me doing just about everything but sitting still. One of them was in the mid-1970s. I had been making periodic trips into northern, central, and southwestern New Mexico as a jewelry jobber, buying mostly silver and turquoise bracelets, necklaces, rings, and earrings, although I was in the market for other one-of-a-kind pieces as well, if the price was right. Finding the right price meant going to the right places, and by and large that meant going to the Indian reservations and pueblos, places with names like Zia, Jemez, Cochiti, San Felipe, and Isleta, among others. Going to the right places at the right time also had a lot to do with the cost-effectiveness of, buying the, of the buying experience. From the standpoint of the buyer, winter was the best bargaining time. January and February were prime months for haggling with Native American jewelry makers. They had plenty of jewelry, but not much money, and the buyers felt they had sufficient money with which to acquire plenty of jewelry. Of course, the prices for which items would eventually change hands in the dead of winter were shamefully low. I didn't have it in me to take advantage of the artisans in that way, so I drew the line at late November and early December when the haggling wasn't nearly so severe. Occasionally, I would venture out further into the countryside, not for business but for curiosity's sake. One morning early, I'd finished a quick rendezvous with a silversmith at the Alamo Bend Navajo Indian Reservation, up the road from Magdalena in southwestern New Mexico. It was the 1st of December, and the artisan asked me, You going over to the Frisco for the celebration? I didn't know what he was referring to, so I asked him to clue me in. You know, he said, commemorating El Fago Baca's famous shootout of 1884. The town's actually called Reserve now, but it used to be called Frisco because it's in the San Francisco Mountains over by Gila National Forest. I thanked him for the info and for the squash blossom necklace and assorted silver bracelets I'd bought from him and headed out the reservation on Route 169. Nearly three hours later, I arrived in reserve and found out everything I thought I'd ever need to know about El Fago Baca's famous shootout. Seems that on December 1st, 1884, in reserve, which was then called Frisco, Sheriff El Fago Baca arrested one of several cowboys who'd been shooting up the town and had taken pot shots at Baca. The cowboy's friends wanted him released, but Baca refused to do so. After threats from numerous cowboys, Baca took refuge in the house of Geronimo Armijo, who, luckily for Baca, had built a fairly rugged dwelling of thick adobe walls. A standoff with the cowboys ensued, and a gang of 80 cowhands attacked the house. Supposedly, the cowboys fired more than 4,000 rounds into the house, 
although none had hit Baca because he had been lying prone on the dirt floor that was two feet below the level of the bottom of the house. Baca had killed four of the attackers and wounded eight others during the siege, which ended after 36 hours when the cowboys ran out of ammunition. Six months later, in May of 1885, Baca was charged with the murder of one of the cowboys who had attacked the cabin, and he was subsequently jailed until his trial three months later in August when he was acquitted after the Armijo's house door, which had over 400 bullet holes in it, was entered as evidence. As I was headed back north to Colorado later that afternoon, I suddenly recalled the version of Alfago Baca that Walt Disney had made into a movie series about a decade earlier. Baca was the character with nine lives who had even stolen one of Pancho Villa's pistols and lived to tell about it. So much for the pre-Christmas weeks of yesteryear. Watch out for those midnight sales. Tomorrow, no main. Have a great day.